Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a podcast about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. When I was a scholar at the Cato Institute, interns frequently asked me for reading recommendations. My advice was typically to read books outside of the libertarian canon. This was for a couple of reasons. First, because understanding the ideas of those who disagree with us helps us be better advocates for our own ideas. But second, because thinkers who aren't necessarily aligned with our politics perfectly, or who reject them entirely, nonetheless have valuable insights to offer. Intellectual provincialism leads nowhere. It is with that lesson in mind that I brought my friend Jason Kuznicki on today to talk about the French philosopher and historian Michel Foucault. Foucault is often either looked at skeptically by non-leftists or just ignored entirely. But his studies of knowledge and power and the relationship between the two offer powerful tools for critiquing the state as well as other forms of coercion. With Jason's help, we explore Foucault's core ideas and some of his most famous works, and we place them in the context of the broader struggle for liberty. Be sure to stick around to the end of today's episode to hear a preview of our next show and to learn how you can listen to it two weeks early, as well as gain access to our fun Discord community and book club by becoming a Reimagining Liberty supporter. Foucault can be a little difficult to pin down from the perspective of academic disciplines. He sometimes gets referred to as a philosopher. His books, I think Barnes Noble puts them in the philosophy section, but he also seems to be an historian, a a social scientist. How should we think of him? Where does where does he fit into broader academic categories? When he was given a chance to define his own project, uh, he called himself a historian of systems of thought. Uh, this was in 1970, so kind of middle to late part of his career, and uh, he had taken a chair at the Collège de France, which is uh, an institution that offers a you know, very large amount of academic freedom, and this is what he described himself as doing. He's studying the history of systems of thought. And uh, I've always found that helpful as sort of uh, a way to classify him. Uh, I don't think he's a social scientist. Uh, he's he's not careful enough in his research, to be honest. Uh, he's more of a philosopher, but what he's trying to do is to tell stories about how people thought in the past and how thinking changed over time. Let me ask real quick then what you just said about not being careful, because one of the one of the criticisms that I have heard of Foucault, and and this might color the rest of our conversation, is that his the veracity of some of his historical analysis can leave a bit to be desired. Is that is it true that he gets things wrong from a historical perspective? And and does he get them if he does, does he get them wrong enough that it impacts the way that we should we should think about approach or, or I guess, use the conclusions that he draws from the historical analysis? Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. An example of, of one thing that I would uh, point to that he got wrong from my perspective is that he's famous for saying that until the late 19th century, the homosexual did not exist. And I can point to 18th century texts where 
uh, we have descriptions in the police archives of Paris where the police are talking about arresting men who meet one another for sex in public parks. And they have their own codes by which they recognize one another, and they have this very clear sense that they all belong to a kind of persecuted minority, and they know about it, and the police know about it, and uh, they're not using the word homosexual, but everybody knows what's going on, and everybody knows that there's this sort of settled disposition toward that. And uh, so... I don't really think he's being very careful about uh, about doing a historical survey. But at the same time, there's something very interesting here, which is that the profession of medicine and the you know, upstart profession of, of psychiatry is, uh, you know, they're both trying to figure out uh, what's going on with these people, and they become an object of study in a way that they hadn't before. So uh, he has the sort of philosopher's habit of trying to make these really oracular pronouncements, but then they kind of have to be qualified. Uh, reading Foucault is a lot like reading Nietzsche, who was actually a tremendous influence on Foucault in terms of his own you know, intellectual formation. Nietzsche was hugely, hugely important to him. And uh, stylistically, there's a lot in common, especially in his earlier, his earlier works, I would say. We can also try to categorize him ideologically, which which gets done a lot. We've had Jordan Peterson, I think, has lumped him in with the postmodern neo-Marxists, which is a, an awfully confused category if you know anything about Marxism or postmodernism. But how should we think about him? Is he is he a Marxist, as he's sometimes called? Is he a postmodernist? Is he's usually like when you take a lit theory course, he gets discussed in that range of thinkers often. Yeah, I I wouldn't say that Foucault is is a Marxist. I don't think the category fits very well at all. Uh, to a Marxist, all of history is the story of class struggle and the story of the implications of class struggle. So uh, when you look at the 19th century, what you see if you're a Marxist is a story of the proletariat in conflict with the bourgeoisie. And Foucault is is willing to admit that socioeconomic classes exist, and and I think every every uh, good social theorist really ought to be aware that socio socioeconomic classes are real. Uh, but that doesn't make him a Marxist, and it doesn't make him a Marxist because the classes are not engaged solely in uh, struggle with one another. They are. Uh, one element of many in a complex multi-causal uh, story. And by the same token, uh, the end game is not the same. For a Marxist, eventually the proletariat is going to win and they will do away with class distinction and make a society without uh, arbitrary domination or oppression by, by capitalism. And uh, Foucault is, in a way, a bit more pessimistic than that. He doesn't believe that history has that kind of end point to it. Uh, history remains always one damn thing after another. And if you think that there's a way to get out of power, you're you know to escape the you know power relations that structure society, you're you're probably missing something, or you've probably uh, actually bought into one or another ideology that. Uh, is not going to deliver what it's promising. Uh, he's he's uh, 
in a way both multi-causal about historical events but also uh not teleological about the direction of history what about him as a postmodernist in the sense he does seem to be quite skeptical of or examines broader narratives that we tell ourselves about a range of things and the way that those narratives play into power and knowledge does that categorize him as a postmodernist I think that's a bit of a better characterization. Uh, at at one point, he he disavowed being a structuralist, and that has gotten him called a post-structuralist. Uh, which okay, fine. Uh, I I I don't know. I I tend to I tend to see him, and I've often talked about him as a perverse functionalist. And what I mean by that is that in Old school functionalism, when you observe a social regularity or an institution or an ethos, you try to explain it in terms of how that phenomenon relates to the sustenance and the replication of, of the society that it's uh, situated in. And uh, so Durkheim, for example, described suicide as a kind of almost a social immune system where when someone commits suicide, it's an indication, it's a social signal to everyone else that something is wrong here, that some you know something needs to be done. And that contributes to social stability in the long run. Uh, the problem with functionalism as an explanatory model is that it really can't account very well for historical change. Everything adds up to the same. And where uh yeah that's that's you know classical functionalism vanilla functionalism if you will the perverse functionalism uh that i would uh use to describe foucault is is that a phenomenon an ethos an institution doesn't actually uh point at or sustain society it's self-perpetuating uh we find institutions looking after their own interests we find uh, an arm of the bureaucracy that doesn't look out for the good order of society. It looks out for itself. It tries to ma maximize its power. And uh, in that way, uh, the theory is flexible and it applies to potentially a lot of different, uh, different phenomena in society. And it uh, looks at them uh less systematically and therefore with a lot more uh nuance or particularity and uh you know it's very skeptical of the kinds of overarching theories that a marxist or a functionalist would bring to analysis of the same phenomenon uh and that is that is actually a, a characteristically postmodern move so let's then dig into now that we've categorized him or or talked about why I guess he's can be difficult to pin down. Uh, let's talk about his ideas. So his main his main focus throughout much of his scholarship seems to be this relationship between power and knowledge, and and the way that they can define each other or play into each other. That's a I mean that's a big field. So maybe as you know. So we always recommend like start by kind of defining terms. In this context, what does Foucault mean by 
knowledge. And I ask this in part because as you know, if we if we place it with the postmodernists, one of the objections to postmodernism that you hear from non-postmodernists, whether those are libertarians, conservatives, people on the right, or even, you know, even Marxists, uh, is is that it's this rejection of the very possibility of knowledge or turning all of knowledge, all of truth into a social construct that is that is unmoored from objectivity and the ability to actually know things or to understand things or to just point at facts. Is that is that an accurate assessment of what he means by knowledge or how he approaches understanding it? I think that for Foucault, knowledge is always useful to some end. And so a a claim of a fact is not ever neutral. It doesn't ever have a politically neutral valence. And so if I were to start an essay by talking about a crime and talking about its perpetrator and saying, and by the way, he was a Jew, that would be uh, perhaps a completely true fact, but it would have a political dimension. And the fact that I saw fit to point it out and, and to emphasize and talk about the implications of that fact, that is a political move. Uh, that situates me as someone who views Jews as suspicious and as potentially criminal, and I'm identifying this to bring to your attention. Now, it, it you know, you can say that that's a neutral fact, but in, in some ways it's definitely not. And it's, it fails to be neutral in the ways that I'm using it, the ways that I am, I am using it rhetorically to call attention to a group that I want to exercise power over. That's an interesting point because it seems obviously true, but it's one that gets sometimes rhetorically overlooked or or rhetorically hidden in the you know so it shows up in one hand in the I'm just asking questions approach to you know trying to hide your ideology, but it also you know a lot of people look at there's there's media bias and the media is biased in a leftward direction as a common refrain and and for a lot of Americans, what they think that means is that the media basically lies in favor of leftist political causes or it, it makes things up. You can't trust them when in fact the, the media bias has a lot more to do with when a reporter is reporting out a story, what facts – they're not lying or they're, you know, they're, not, they're not consciously lying or misstating the truth, but they are, they are choosing which facts are salient to the story and and the facts that are often chosen ha can have a political slant in sometimes a more you know certainly not in a rightward direction for a lot of the mainstream you know major news outlets and so on and that seems to be another version of this of you know so the the you're talking about the criminal and you mention in passing that they're a Jew you're basically saying, I think that this fact is salient to the broader story I'm telling in which in this case about criminality or if you're reporting out a story for the New York Times or the Washington Post, I think that these particular facts are salient and that that can have that political charge. Yes, yes. And and it's and it's something that's actually a lot bigger than that. Uh, you know, it's easy to grasp when we're talking about uh, one line in an article written by someone who's who's putting it in there because they're anti-Semitic, uh, but also that type of 
uh, framing of a social phenomenon can extend to many people at once. So a researcher who is trying to figure out why people are gay, uh, you might say, well, it's a neutral question. It's completely neutral. It's we're just trying to find the objective fact about the matter. Uh, personally, as someone who actually is gay, it might be interesting to know why I turned out that way. But it is hard to deny that a lot of people who are researching that question or who claim to be researching that question are doing it because they want me to stop and because they want to have, again, a, a kind of power over me to impose a discipline on on lots of people. And uh, so the ability to select which facts are appropriate topics for study or which facts are are uh, not those are those are in a sense political questions they have an objective aspect to them but uh i'd find it really weird if someone was researching race in order to uh make people look less like the race that they were born into and to deacculturate them to their race i mean that's obviously something that we would find very threatening and 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 troubling and uh uh you know that's a made up example but real examples of that do exist. I, I think one example of that is I think what you've just described is basically the quintessence of the so-called intellectual dark web and its related heterodox, as they call themselves, thinkers, is they often like, I'm I'm just looking into these issues, but the issues that they choose to look into almost invariably end up having this like culturally reactionary or right wing slant about gayness or the the real role of women or the the necessity and reification of hierarchy or race and IQ which a number of them are into like they're they can be doing their research but the research topics that they pick I think are very much speak to this and that's why I think that you know the intellectual dark web is is ultimately like a a pretty kind of right wing movement, even though they might deny it, is it's about it's about topic selection and which pieces of knowledge they choose to emphasize. Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, someone who subversively points out, "Guess what? Did you know that people can't actually fully transition from male to female or from female to male? They still have an awful lot of the attributes of their uh, gender assigned at birth." Well, yeah, of course I know that. Everybody knows that. This isn't actually a fact that anyone is ignorant of. It is a fact that you bring up purely for the political reasons. And uh, I can easily imagine a counterfactual universe in which we had mastery over that technologies, uh, you know, mastery over the technologies needed to uh, undo that fact. And and then where would that be? You know, this is. Uh, this is a a question of our uh, technological capacity. It's not a question uh, that ought to touch on uh, individual dignity or or respect. It ought to be something that is is completely uh, ethically set aside. Okay, so this is so I think this is a valuable way of thinking about knowledge and a powerful and important one in the sense that it's not Foucault. And, and I mean, most postmodernists are not denying that there is a such thing as true facts, or that there is knowledge, but but merely pointing out, or that you know, science 
is just a social construct and there is no scientific truth and so on. Um, but but rather that how these things get used, how they get raised, where they're emphasized, where they're employed has a political and a power relationship element to it that is that is almost inevitable, hard to escape. Yeah, I, I wouldn't deny that there is such a thing as truth. What I would say is that what we take to be true today is always the subject of future conversations and what's admissible or not admissible in those conversations and why is something that politics can and does contest. And that doesn't mean that truth can be whatever you feel like it. It doesn't mean that your gender can be attack helicopter. It means that we are... Uh, subject to future developments in history. Nobody has escaped the uh, ongoing push and pull of power simply because they believe certain things. Uh, I I would say in a lot of ways, my thinking is postmodern, but I still got vaccinated. And I don't see a contradiction there. I think that was the best thing that we knew how to do for the problem at hand. And if I'd been a forward-thinking scientific person in the 18th century, maybe I wouldn't have gotten vaccinated against the pandemic. I would have you know, hopefully had the resources to uh, go to Switzerland or something and get out of the city. Uh, you know, uh, it would not have been it would not have been the same treatment, and it would have been you know, colored by the scientific beliefs of the time, which were you know, by our standards wrong, and and you know they don't seem to have uh, been justified over time, uh, but. You know, I I would have done it. Okay, so that's knowledge. What is meant then by power in in Foucault's sense? Are we talking just political power? Are we talking hierarchy, social power? What's the scope of this? Well, one way I've seen it is that is that the phrase "knowledge is power" should be kept in mind, and then also the phrase "might makes right." And the power of knowledge is power, and the might of might makes right are in some ways kind of the same thing. Uh, yeah, that's sort of one of one memorable way to put it. Uh, but uh, naturally, when you're looking at this, you want to find some kind of a key or some kind of a system to it. Like, is it really the bourgeoisie oppressing the proletariat? And and Foucault's answer to that in the history of sexuality is actually no uh it's not the bourgeoisie oppressing the proletariat which is what marxist historians of sexuality had said before him uh foucault marshals considerable evidence to show that uh new sexual discipline in the 19th century was something that the bourgeoisie was doing to itself and it doesn't make sense in terms of trying to create a class of stable, docile, oppressed workers from whom we can extract as much value as possible. Uh, this is a thing that we expect of our sons and daughters, uh, that they will exercise sexual discipline and avoid things like masturbation, which was taken to be this absolutely you know, shocking uh, moral failure and also uh, conducive to you know, terrible health outcomes, uh, which you know, is very odd. And and you know it's you know 
sheer oddness ought to be taken as evidence that it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with uh, economic class struggle in the first place. Let's turn now to, I guess, a couple examples of his of his works and walk through them to see how this kind of analysis plays out. So the first, he's really his two most famous works are Madison Civilization and Discipline and Punish. So let's start with the first of those, Madison Civilization, where he's looking at the way that the concept of madness originated, evolved, and was used in within power structures and for social control and so on. What does Foucault mean by madness and is it the same thing as what we today would describe as mental illness? It's like there's a family resemblance between those two things and they're not exactly the same. Madness was to him a concept that united moral elements and mental elements and also physical elements in ways that we don't see as as uh, necessarily having the same relations nowadays. When we talk about mental illness today, we often use that as a way of downplaying the moral dimension of a a uh, an action or a person. So uh, we might say, you know, someone might say. This person who was uh, in, you know, it was a school shooter, you know, shot up a school. He was mentally ill. And someone might answer, no, he wasn't mentally ill. He was evil. And that's a distinction that in the early modern era is uh, frequently just blurred over or indistinct or not even not even present. And the same is true with. Uh, the physical aspects of of what we call mental illness that uh, someone who has a an organic brain disease will behave in ways that we find uh, difficult to account for otherwise uh, but to a, a person in the early modern era there might be a much greater willingness to say well they're also evil or uh, they are also uh, diluted in a way that uh, you know, can be can be talked about independently from the organic illness. You know, there's very you know, what passed for a model of organic illness at the time was exceptionally crude and clumsy. Anyway, they they have hysteria. Well, what's that? Uh, it's the uterus wandering around in the body. I mean, it's it's nonsense like that. Is their you know their concept of organic disease in a lot of cases. So uh, there is this sort of mishmash of ideas or what, what Foucault calls a discourse uh, that uh, unites organic disease, morality, and ideation all together in, in one, uh, one package, and it's called madness. And nowadays, we, we distinguish differently, and one of, the, one of the markers of that is that we have a specific set of professions that is tasked with uh, managing mental illness in a way that the the early modern era lacked and it's exactly that development of the professional specialization with its specialized body of knowledge that licenses intervening into people's lives uh, whether for good or for ill you had 
prior to our conversation, you sent me basically notes towards an essay you're writing about Foucault. And in there, you talk about within the context of Madison civilization, what was called the Great Confinement. Can you tell us what that is and its its relevance to this discussion? Yeah. So in uh, 1656, there was a sort of general reformation of the uh, hôpital system in Paris. The hôpital were not hospitals as we know them nowadays. They weren't specifically tasked with uh, curing injuries and diseases and they, you know fixing injuries and diseases. There's nothing like that. It was uh, a place of confinement for people who were poor, for people who were sick, for people who were uh, mad. And uh, there was not necessarily a whole lot of distinction drawn among them. And uh, once the Hôpital General got going, uh, it very quickly confined something like 6,000 people, which at the time was uh, about uh, 1% of the population of Paris, which is an extraordinary number. Uh, for reference, the United States, which is the uh, most incarcerating of the industrialized nations in the world, uh, well, industrialized democratic nations of the world, uh, we incarcerate about 2.8% of our population. Uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, this was something that was being actively done in the major cities of France in a way that hadn't been done before, this confinement of so many people. And what, uh, what Foucault does in, in pointing this out is to point out that the institutions that would later become prisons and hospitals and madhouses all have a common origin. They all started with this undifferentiated confinement of lots of different types of people uh, by our lights. But at the time, it was, uh, well, it's just the general hospital. That's that's where you go if you uh, are unable to work or if you are uh, poor or whatever, whatever. And why would why would a society do that? Why why would they? Uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, sort of the question that uh, he explores uh, in Madness and Civilization. And what's his answer? That uh, in part, the uh, the effort is being made to differentiate the people on the outside from the people on the inside. That if you're not confined, you can uh, point to the confined people and say, I'm not like them. And uh, there are even sort of social practices that build up around around these places like, hey, let's go visit the crazy people and, and, and watch them and see them. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a, a kind of entertainment, but it's also a kind of, uh, uh, reminder to yourself that you are occupying a different social place from them. And thank goodness. Is this similar or are there parallels to kind of a Carl Schmidt approach to distinctions between a people and nations and that we define ourselves in opposition to? Like the friend enemy distinction, yeah, yeah, it sort of is. I mean, it it is it is in some ways. Uh, there's a, a kind of uh, 
uh, early 20th century or existentialist uh, concern with the other in in Foucault's work, although he did not consider himself, and I don't think it's it's really right to consider him uh, a part of existentialism, strictly speaking, either. Let's turn to the second of these two probably most famous works, Discipline and Punish, which Foucault often opens his books with very striking I mean, just imagery. And so how does, how does this book open? Yeah, it starts with the execution of Damien, who is, uh, uh, as far as historians have looked into it, he was uh, somewhat of a religious fanatic and uh, he failed to uh, assassinate the king and the, uh, the punishment that he got is the thing that really gets Foucault writing because he was you know, very elaborately dismembered and burned and mutilated. And, and uh, why would you do this? You know, we don't, we don't do executions that way in our society. Uh, the France of his time likewise did not you know, do that. Uh, what was the point of it? And the point of it to uh, Foucault was that uh, it was demonstrating to people the power of the sovereign over an individual body, now, demonstrating that threats to sovereignty would be returned many, many, many times over. I mean, Damien himself, actually, uh, historians argue about whether he wanted to kill Louis XV or just get attention. And uh, uh, one one can say maybe he was really just an attention seeker. Uh, he didn't end up doing a lot of injury to you know, to Louis. He ended up only only giving him a minor wound, and uh, in return for that, he was very elaborately taken apart by by the uh, penal system, and. Uh, the question then becomes, how does one move from that type of punishment to uh, punishment in uh, mid-20th century France or punishment in 21st century uh, America, which in important ways are, are very similar? Punishment is uh, taking place outside of public view. It is done by imprisonment which uh, essentially takes away uh, time from your life and replaces it with this you know, confinement that you would never otherwise consent to. It, uh, uh, you know, Foucault makes this very interesting remark that I'm not exactly sure what to do with, but I find very evocative that uh, prison is appealing to the authorities because it's the same type of punishment for everyone. And the thing that it differs in is just the amount of time uh, that you spend in the prison. And so you can set up a kind of uh, hierarchy of, of how bad you consider a crime to be. And you can signal that hierarchy of, of badness or the hierarchy of badness of the individual through the amount of prison, you know, prison time that they're doing, uh, which I'd like to do more thinking about that and, and possibly writing about it in the future that yeah, it's, it's appealing to a, a fully modern as opposed to an early modern sensibility because it's got this quantifiable aspect to it, which 
punishment through mutilation didn't have so so clearly or across such a wide field. It does seem like there's a I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but it does seem like <clears throat> one of the things that that modern contemporary industrialized democracies do is attempt to obfuscate the exercise of of their power and how much power they they exercise over people and and the degree to which it is it can often be just as brutal as what we've seen in the past you know i'm often i'm struck by it's been a successful project i think in looking at like say america i am struck by you read the declaration of independence as you know we sometimes do and it gets quoted from on the 4th of july and how unbelievably tame the the system the the long train of abuses that led the founding fathers to decide it was time to rebel and violently rebel looks compared to what the government does to all of us on a you know i think just the criminal justice system as it exists in america um would have caused the founding fathers to say okay it's time for it's time for rebellion let alone like the degree of taxation and the degree of regulation and intervention and social control and all of that but but it's been kind of a technocratic way systematized made scientific made part of institutions and articulated processes that that depersonalize it and and it feels like the you know so what's done at the beginning of discipline and punish where this guy is I'm trying to remember all the stuff that's done to him but he's he's drawn and quartered hanged hanged drawn and quartered yes which takes quite a while and they have to like go back to it because like the horses can't pull him apart and they have to hack at him for a while yeah they botched it yeah they botched the execution in part because this is interesting they botched it because this was actually the first time that they'd done it in quite some time this was a practice that was on the way out and it was only because he had tried to assassinate the king of france it was an extraordinary crime that uh, my own graduate advisor uh uh noted that, look, this was a weird crime, and that's why it got a weird punishment, and it's sort of not necessarily the best place to start your book about punishment with. But uh, now, to that, I might counter, yes, it was a weird crime with a weird punishment. You, know, you don't get that many would-be assassins uh, of the king uh, to be punished, but People accepted it. People didn't say, hey, this is horrible. We shouldn't have this. People accepted that that's just what happens to regicides. And they were, uh, you know, while it was not numerically frequent, it was also not considered an outrage or you know, a horrible abuse of power at the time. Uh, a few people, maybe, but uh, it, it, for the most part, no. Right. Whereas if we had, if if the federal government had taken, say, John Hinckley Jr., and done something similar, you know, or if we had taken, if if it was carried out in a similar way, um, it would it would shock and horrify us because it's not the clean and systematized and clinical way that we think about the exercise of power today. Exactly, and and let's not let's not kid ourselves though that there are some very serious downsides to the modern way of doing this. 
in our present day criminal justice system, virtually nobody gets a trial by jury. And that was one of the things that, in fact, is complained about in the Declaration of Independence, that there are trial procedures that are being imposed that are not what we have typically known. They are not consistent with the rights of Englishmen, and uh, we should not, therefore, continue our, our political union with England. And uh, why does it happen nowadays? Well, uh, it happens because it's out of sight and out of mind. Uh, when you see a, uh, a legal procedure TV show, there's just about always a jury trial. Maybe that's because it's good drama, but maybe that's because it's a comforting story that we tell ourselves when the reality of criminal justice in the United States almost never looks like a jury trial and almost always looks like a really hard bargain that is struck between the prosecutor and the defendant. And the, the defendant has to decide whether they're going to take an enormous amount of prison time or a relatively small amount of prison time. Your phrase out of sight, out of mind is maybe a good pivot to what is the most famous. I think it's, it's a whole chapter in Discipline and Punish on the panopticon, which is not out of sight, out of mind, but more out of sight, very much in mind. Uh, so what is the panopticon and what should we, what's the lesson we draw from it? So the classical panopticon is a big round room, like an amphitheater perhaps, where the bowl of the amphitheater is all covered with a, a, uh, row of prison cells and the prison cells all face toward the center they have a window that looks out toward the center that cannot be closed and it's it's pretty large or maybe it's just bars in the front and there is at the center an observation post and the observation post is ringed with lights that aim at the prison cells and the result of this layout is that the person at the observation post can observe everyone in the panopticon at any time that they want without being observed themselves. The lights make it impossible for you as a prisoner to see whether you're being observed or not. So there are two very different positions in this, in this setup. One, the observer can see everything while never being seen, and the other, the prisoner, doesn't really get to see much of anything, and they are at least potentially always being seen. And uh, this was a, a setup that Jeremy Bentham actually ex you know, enthusiastically recommended, that this is how prisons should be set up to him. And... Uh, Foucault finds this a, a very evocative and very important uh, sort of social technology because it sets up in the mind of the prisoner the idea that they are always being watched or that they are always subject to being watched. And uh, once you've sort of gotten the idea that you're always being watched, you're going to modify your behavior a lot more carefully and you're at least in theory going to become a lot more docile and a lot more a lot more tractable to whatever 
uh, goals the the uh, imprisoning authority has for you. This obviously has quite a lot of parallels to our modern internet connected world, whether it's it's the Snowden revelations of warrantless wiretapping and the the government just scooping up massive amounts of data about what we're doing, or on the flip side, the it gets called surveillance capitalism of you know everything that we do online is tracked in extraordinary ways. I installed a a DuckDuckGo, the the like private search engine has an app for the phone that is a VPN that blocks trackers baked into the apps on your phone that basically are phoning home all the time data about that the app is gathering about you and it tells you it gives you a little report. You can run through it and you can see and it's it's extraordinary how all of these free apps that you install on your phone, you know, random like this sports news app that gives me scores and updates is attempting hundreds and hundreds of times a day to send information about my device, including attempts to get like my location, um, when I'm using it, how much I'm using it, all of it. But in this case, they're selling advertisers. But like we have, we have kind of all to some extent just internalized the notion that when we are in online spaces or when we're using an electronic device, which now we're carrying around in our pockets with us, but you know, basically all the time except when it's on the stand next to our beds, um, is telling various people we can't see everything we're up to. Yeah, yeah. The the Jeremy Bentham style Panopticon is sort of like Panopticon 1.0, but there are so many different variations on it in the modern world that once you get this idea of looking for privileged places of surveillance, once you get once you start to look for them, you start finding them everywhere and they really are very very common in online life. That's that's absolutely true that uh, most of us are under surveillance all the time and uh we either uh modify our behavior or uh potentially subject ourselves to uh to being disciplined uh if we fail to and yeah we should ask ourselves about that uh, that is that is an excellent uh example and it's sort of become one of the iconic examples of of Foucault's idea of power uh, power in its absolute crudest sense might be, uh, I have a gun and so I can kill you. But why stop there? There are so many more things that you can do with the threat of death, including putting someone into a panopticon. Why not do that instead? Then you can have many, many more outcomes from your power. You can do more things with it. Uh, the mere power to kill or refrain from killing somebody is is small stuff compared to the way that uh, social technologies can let you rearrange uh, the lives of others. What then do we make of, you know, so like, like, let's go back to the Bentham style panopticon of the observation booth in the center of this amphitheater. And it's, there's a guy in there who could be watching at any time, any particular one of these things. And so he has a lot of them. Um, and, and we can have a similar thing with, say, the NSA is scooping up extraordinary amounts of data, so is watching all of our electronic communications or a large portion of them at any given time. 
but it often the the result of that isn't so much domineering social control on the part of the observer. It can be like in some countries it absolutely is. In China it can be in China they but do, yeah. Here the problem that seems to arise is that it results in the gathering of basically a an overwhelming amount of information for the observer to the extent that they can no longer really act upon it. It it, it like swamps the meaningful information. And so we we you know talk about these there were in the aftermath of 9-11, there were these fusion centers, which was 9-11 was seen as a failure of the observers. Like the observers didn't catch all of the obvious signs that they would have in order to prevent this, or they were caught, but they weren't coordinated in any way. And so the fusion centers were an attempt to say, we've got these different agencies gathering information. We need ways for them to be compelled to talk to each other instead of walling themselves off in bureaucratic infighting. But the fusion centers didn't accomplish much because it was like so much information that you couldn't make sense of it. And and so is there – does the panopticon, if it grows sufficiently large, does it ultimately become self-defeating? Well, maybe it does, yes. Uh, this is an example of a uh, potential site of resistance for Foucault and and resistance to him is is also – an aspect of power. The mere fact that you have to resist implies the existence of power to begin with. And uh, power to him is not something that is either monocausal or omnipotent. It is not the case that just because someone occupies a position of power or some institution holds a large amount of power, that it therefore always gets its way. Uh, it is possible to resist, and it is possible for an individual or an institution with power to fail to use it. And so uh, that that seems like it may be an example of of exactly that uh, the you know, the failure to uh, integrate all of the different data bits into uh, a coherent picture means that uh, the power of the NSA only goes so far and and what it can do only goes so far and uh uh that doesn't mean I'm I'm blessing terrorism here uh, very very far from it uh I would certainly prefer to live under the United States government as it currently exists warts and all rather than living under al qaeda or the taliban uh, but still, uh, that is how they manage to do what they manage to do, is that they have uh, exploited a kind of, uh, a, a kind of uh, gap in the power structure. I want to ask you about something that's also in those, this draft essay that you're working on about you, – you address libertarianism and classical liberalism directly here. So the, I'll read this, this passage. The most Foucauldian criticism that I can make of contemporary American libertarianism and classical liberalism is as follows. Libertarians rightly recoil at biopower and its soul-crushing ministrations, well and good. But it's often the case that they would rush headlong from technologically and psychologically sophisticated forms of power into older and coarser forms that aren't in any sense much better. So what I mean by that is that – to the extent that there is a narrative arc to history in Foucault's work, uh, it looks something like this. 
in ancient societies, the uh, government, such as it was, was concerned with allocating the power to kill. In the Roman Republic, the patriarch of a family had the power to kill anyone in their family if they wanted to. Uh, usually that was that was exercised to expose children who were thought unfit to to live or be part of the family. But uh, uh, if a patriarch killed a slave, okay, that was you know fine by Roman society and and few people would complain. Uh, the way that power developed from there, though, was increasingly toward uh, extraction, toward uh, getting tribute and then taxation, which is a, a more organized form of tribute, uh, from getting tribute in kind to tribute in money. Uh, power uh, begins with the threat of death, but then it starts doing things like taking your money on pain of death. And the government that can kill you can take your money instead. And the government that can take your money can use that money for other purposes. Or it can say, uh, I want you to uh, obey the speed limit or else I will take your money. And so we move from very crude exercises of power that pretty much always leave somebody dead or, or injured to exercises of power that push those you know, very crude threats or, or crude actions into the background and instead orchestrate the actions of a population or, or aim to orchestrate the actions of a population and perhaps even to uh, order their thoughts and their allegiances in in you know, very detailed and and uh, you know sort of psychically demanding ways that uh, the the government uh, ends up controlling not our lives but our thoughts. And where I'm where I am criticizing present day libertarianism is to say, look, we ought to consider that. Romanticizing the 18th century, for example, doesn't get us to freedom. It gets us to an older and cruder form of power. Uh, romanticizing the uh, Roman Republic, which you still do sometimes find in a lot of places, does not get us free of power. It gets us to an older and cruder form of power. And uh, so what's needed is a recognition that power has taken many forms over time and the ability of an individual to freely chart their course of life uh, remains ephemeral, remains a, a difficult thing that you know, people only, only rarely achieve, perhaps. A couple of questions now that were raised in the Reimagining Liberty Discord, which to be crudely commercial for a moment. For for listeners out there, you can become a supporter. Just go to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe, or there's a link in the show notes, and you'll gain access to our super fun Discord where you can offer up questions for future episodes or join our book club or talk with a lot of really smart people. But here are a couple of them. So the first is about Foucault at the end of his life is it true that he took a more 
liberal market-friendly turn and away from the, the more leftist politics, if not Marxism, that characterized much of his career. Is, it, is that true? And if so, what should we take from it? It is to to some degree true. Uh, I don't want to say, ah, he was one of us, because he really wasn't. Uh, near the end of his life, he did have some praise for uh, the Austrian School of Economics. He did uh, you know, say that uh, people who are are thinking along those lines are, are examples of the the will not to be governed, which you know, in a system like this is, is, is obviously important. He also, he also did have kind words for Maoism and he did have, uh, near the end of his life as well, a favorable view of the Iranian revolution, which is, is shocking and inexplicable to me. And I absolutely don't want to defend either of those. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, we've forgiven about as much, I think, as, uh, a movement, from the likes of Murray Rothbard, who was thrilled that the South Vietnamese state was falling. Uh, I wouldn't have found that thrilling if I'd been alive at the time. I, I think I would have found it very sad. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I'm a lot less interested in the particular political uh, conclusions that he came to and a lot more interested in what I see as as useful ideas for uh, thinking about social relations and and social theory. The other is about a a line from his book on the genealogy of ethics um, that speaks to because a lot of what we have discussed today has been fairly grim, right? Like this has been him talking about just how power gets exercised in awful ways, the way that we internalize it, and so on. Um, and so how we should take kind of the the outlook and character of his broader project. And so he writes, I'll read this, this short passage. My point is not that everything is bad, but that everything is dangerous, which is not exactly the same as bad. If everything is dangerous, then we always have something to do. So my position leads not to apathy, but to hyper and pessimistic activism. I think that the main ethico-political choice we have to make every day is to determine which is the main danger. How should we interpret that? I think that I, I, this is this is not a text I should say that I'm I'm familiar with, but he said similar things elsewhere, and uh, and I don't find that unrepresentative of his thinking. And what I what I would say is that. Uh, if you're looking for someone to ride in on a white horse and save you, forget it. That's not how history works. That's how maybe literary narratives work, but not history. And uh, if you are expecting that there will come some time when we've escaped from history, you should forget that too. There's not going to be the kind of, of Marxist or Hegelian end of history after which oppression and power cease to be uh, going phenomena, they will still be there and you're going to be stuck with them. And so what you need to do is ask yourself in the situation that you're in and with careful reference to that situation, what are the, uh, what are the mainsprings of power as it currently exists? 
one of my projects with Reimagining Liberty is to introduce libertarians, radical liberals, classical liberals to thinkers and ideas that they can benefit from, that they can gain from, but are coming from places, whether that's individual thinkers or schools of thought, that they tend to either dismiss out of hand or ignore or believe aren't worth exploring. And for a lot of liberty-minded people, Foucault falls into that category. He's just this Oh yeah, you might you might get guy. lefty cooties if you read his books or whatever. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I, to me, uh being an intellectual means you've got to you've got to read everything and and read things that you're not supposed to read especially. And uh now, maybe maybe my take on Foucault is a bit against the grain, and and probably if you were to resurrect a 1960s French Marxist, you know, they would say, you know, yeah, you've 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 really got the guy totally wrong. Uh, but that's not the point. You know, the point is not to sort every different thinker into this or that box, which you can then toss away. Uh, the point is, uh, I, I would say to uh, to go around picking up different clever tricks from this or that author that you can uh, then redeploy yourself. And uh, I think that there is a, uh, a very cogent, uh, if you will, libertarian reading of Foucault that uh, makes him very useful to someone who is concerned primarily with state power, who is primarily concerned with, with the way that states are seeking to control populations and to uh to govern them not not merely in the sense of subjecting them to law but to govern people in the sense of uh living rent free in their heads uh taking taking a, an active role in the uh moral and psychological direction of people uh, the likes of which used to be done by by churches when people were much more religious, but now uh, it would seem that governments are stepping in there into that place, and uh, that again is is a theme in in Foucault's work that ought to be ought to be considered very carefully by us. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jason. Next time on Reimagining Liberty, I talk with Corey Massimino about anarchism. Here's a preview. I think in many ways, anarchism is not at odds with rule of law, even though it, uh, the terminology sounds like they don't go together. But anarchism, I think, is the culmination of rule of law. Rule of law is positioned against rule of men, as, as the rule of power, as might makes right, as, as people lording power of others. So anarchism is the exact opposite of that. It's the culmination of rule of law, not in the sense of law, as in the sense of states and governments and systemic violence and systemic expropriation and, and, and things that anarchists oppose, but law in the sense uh, of a system that treats everyone as dignified equals, that can cooperate on their own terms and of their own accord. If you'd like to listen to that episode two weeks early, as well as get access to our listener community and join the Reimagining Liberty Book Club, consider becoming a show supporter. Look for the link in the show notes or head to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe. 